Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and good evening. A very warm welcome to you tonight as we settle in for what uh, I hope will be a stimulating and revealing conversation about health hacks. Uh, My name's Dan Gaffney, I'm your host tonight. And before we uh, continue, let me acknowledge and pay respect to the original people and the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on. Uh, which is the land of the Gadigal people and the clan of the Eora Nation. The University of Sydney is built on their ancestral lands. Tonight is our final uh, in the the, um, Sydney Ideas Health Forum for 2007, and shortly we will be hearing uh, from some University of Sydney experts on the subject of health hacks, how to keep the mind and body sharp. Uh, Leading us in conversation tonight, we'll have three University of Sydney Uh, experts, as I mentioned, whom I'll introduce more fully in a moment, but they are uh, from your right to left. Um, We have uh, Professor uh, Maria Fiataroni-Singh, Associate Professor Manos Stamatakis, and Dr Melody Ding. Uh, There is uh, free Wi-Fi available tonight. You'll see information on the screen behind me um, with the guest username and the guest password. Now, just a couple of rules of engagement, like Q&A, there are only two rules, or maybe only one rule, but we're going to have two tonight. One is that um, if you would please ask questions only, um, otherwise I will wind you up, and as Tony Jones says, I'll take that as a comment and move to the next person. There will be roving mics also tonight, so if you want to ask a question, there are two mics roving, just put your hand up. Don't have to feel like you're in school, and we'll get a mic to you. Uh, Also, since we're talking about health tonight, um, we are not going to be diagnosing or prognosticating anyone, um, so please don't ask for personal health advice. Also, as uh, you'll see, we are on Twitter tonight, Um, so if you would like to contribute on Twitter, you can also use the hashtag, hashtag SidHealth, to share your thoughts, ideas, observations. Uh, You can find all of Sydney Ideas podcasts at soundcloud.com forward slash Sydney ideas. Now, just to get a bit of a snapshot of the room and who's here for the conversation, if you would um, perhaps raise your hand if you have a uh, professional interest in the subject of health. You might be a student, a doctoral student, a PhD, a lecturer, a clinician of some kind. Um, Thank you. That gives us a good idea of who's here. And if you have a personal interest in the topic, um, you might be a mum, dad, philanthropist, anyone who hasn't got a professional interest, but you do have a personal interest in health. Yeah, of course, right? Thank you. That's the rest of us. So just a little bit of intro to the people who are behind me. Uh, Professor Maria Fiataroni-Singh is a geriatrician whose research uh, and clinical and teaching career is focused on the integration of medicine, exercise, physiology, nutrition as ways to improve health uh, and improve the quality of life across the lifespan. She holds the John Sutton Chair of Exercise and Sports Science in the Faculty of Health Sciences 
um, and a professorship at Sydney Medical School at the University of Sydney. She's also director of the exercise division at the Bowdoin Institute and a research professor at the Charles Perkins Centre. Uh, next, Dr Manos Stamatakis is associate professor and an NHNMRC senior research fellow in the Charles Perkins Centre and the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Uh, Manos has a background in physical activity, epidemiology and exercise science. And before joining the University of Sydney, he spent a decade or more working on large-scale population studies at the University College London. Today, he leads a research program examining the influence of physical activity and lifestyle on population health. And last but not least is Dr Melody Ding. She's a, a, a senior research fellow at the University of Sydney's School of Public Health. Melody is an epidemiologist and a population behavioural scientist. She's interested in understanding the interplay between the environment, lifestyle behaviours, particularly physical activity and chronic disease. Melody's a keen communicator of science to the public and her work has been widely disseminated through the media and around the world. In her spare time, she's passionate about being physically active, especially through cycling, dance and yoga. So that's our panel. Um, just a quick scene setter and then I'll throw to Maria perhaps to um, tell us a little bit briefly about what, uh, why she's here tonight and how she sees the subject of health hacks uh, given her expertise um, in research and as a clinician. So it's been said that for every complex problem there is an answer that is clear, simple and wrong, right? Uh, this insight is also true perhaps about the subject that we're talking about tonight, which is health hacks. Um, there's a lot of interest in how to live a healthy life, um, but these conversations often get boiled down to sound bites and quick fixes that don't actually stack up when we look at our research evidence. So the truth is there are few shortcuts to better health, um, but that's not to say that there are none. And tonight we hope to tease out the complexities and the evidence that underscores what we can do individually and collectively to achieve long, healthy, productive lives, both physically uh, and emotionally and psychologically, um, that are both meaningful and satisfying. So with those few remarks, I might throw to Maria, if you would uh, give us a snapshot about how you see this topic tonight, Maria. Sure. Uh, so I'm a geriatrician, as you heard. I actually entered geriatric medicine after my grandmother fell and broke her hip, and at that point there were no geriatricians actually in the United States, and um, she suffered a variety of, of things that generally happened to older adults in the healthcare system at that time, and I started in this career in medicine to f try and figure out a better way to care for older people, and it seemed to me that a lot of what we did in medicine wasn't really attendant to the needs of older adults in terms of preventive health care and recovery from acute and chronic illnesses. So very interested in, in exercise and nutrition and how, the, how they might be used to both prevent disease as well as treat um, disease. And uh, the very first study I did actually was in uh, older adults between the ages of 90 and 100 who lived in a nursing home and we made them lift very heavy weights uh, because they were suffering from a disease called sarcopenia which basically means your muscles waste away as you get older. And no one had ever really called it a disease or, or figured out a way to treat it. And it turned out the answer was something that every young bodybuilder knows, is that if you want to get bigger muscles, you lift heavy weights. And so that was 30 years ago. Um, and since that time, we've done many, many different studies looking at the benefits of this kind of exercise in particular, uh, but also other kinds of exercise and nutrition and 
so social and psychological interventions to try and optimize uh, health and aging in old age, looking at things like diabetes, osteoporosis, arthritis, dementia, depression, insomnia, ki uh, kidney failure, heart failure, uh, mobility impairment, falls, et cetera. So what we found is that although medicine is good and necessary, there are many other things that people can do in their own lives that are actually complementary and necessary for optimal aging. So that's what I do. Thank you. Manos. Thank you. Uh, I'm Manos Tomatakis, and uh, as Dan introduced uh, previously, uh, my main area of expertise is physical activity. Uh, I'm very interested about questions like how much physical activity we should be doing for optimal health, what types of physical activity, how frequently, things like that. But my interest is not limited to physical activity. Uh, as I'm evolving as a researcher, I would say, I'm developing an interest about the integrated lifestyles in relation to health. So I would like to throw a couple of ideas about what a lifestyle is, because I feel sometimes that it's a poorly defined uh, term, and it's open to different interpretations. So we know several aspects of lifestyle that are linked to health outcomes, like sleep, physical activity, diet, uh, 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 smoking, uh, alcohol uh, intake. Uh, but these are not only the aspects, the components of lifestyle that influence our health. Lifestyle is a lot broader. There are areas that like, for example, mindfulness. What do we know about mindfulness in relation to health? Mindfulness could be considered, someone could argue that it's part of lifestyle. Decisions to have children, perhaps, is that part of lifestyle? Some people would argue that perhaps it's part of lifestyle. Decisions to adopt or buy a dog and live with a dog. That's part of lifestyle. So there are lots of aspects of lifestyle that we understand very, very little about. We know very little about. And even if we consider the traditional components of lifestyle, as aspects of lifestyle like diet and physical activity, I would say that we're still in our early days of understanding them. We're still taking the first glimpse, I would say, uh, in the last 20 or 30 years that we have research about these areas. When we try to address questions around lifestyle and health, I think it's very important to keep in mind that we live, we are going through very strange times. Uh, an example of that is uh, the most powerful man on the planet, Donald Trump, has a view about exercise that is perhaps a bit peculiar. He thinks that uh, humans are batteries. Therefore, if we exercise, we waste energy and we die younger. And this is just uh, one example of how mainstream fake news and fake ideas about lifestyle have become. It's one of the many, there are, there's a whole media complex, a whole media system around uh, fake news uh, and lifestyle is always a topic that attracts a lot of attention. Uh, for example, uh, earlier this year, I saw an article uh, commenting on a new study, apparently, a new scientific study, that showed that exercise can help you grow hair. Now, uh, first of all, I felt very excited, as you can imagine. <laughs> Second thing, very frustrated, because I've been working out literally for 32 years. <laughs> and what's the result? Not much. <laughs> Uh, it has worked much better for Maria and Melody, uh, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd like to throw these few ideas to you, and uh, thank you for listening, and I look forward to a nice discussion. Thank you, Melody.
Thank you for the introduction, Dan, and it's great to see so many enthusiastic faces here. Um, a lot of my research has something to do with um, physical activity as well, so you probably hear that a lot today as a common thing among the three of us. Um, on top of that, because I happen to have an undergraduate degree in marine biology, believe it or not, and uh, my PhD is in behavior science, so I think that gave me a unique perspective and appreciation of the interrelated relationships um, among lifestyles, health, and environment. So a lot of my um, research interest is in that intersection. For example, a couple of years ago, um, I looked into the population data we have here and uh, tried to identify the potential association between prolonged driving time and and a range of health outcomes. And I'm also very interested in contextual factors that are potentially in our environment that make us behave one way or the other. For example, two years ago, I conducted a study and looked at, you know, what would the potential health benefits or health consequences of retirement. So this is just an example of my research. And I'm currently running a, a big study on um, residential environment and cardiovascular disease outcome. So as a public health person, a lot of our research is aiming at not only changing the individual behavior and get individuals informed, but also for policy changes as well, for us to promote a bigger message um, about and the optimal environment that we live in um, for promoting health lifestyles. Thanks, Melody. We're being told that we're uh, in an increasingly sedentary society. Um, uh, is there an optimum amount of physical activity we should be doing? And now's the time for you to start raising your hands. I'm just throwing this to kick off the, the conversation. So if you have a question, please put your hand up. We'll get a mic to you. Is there an optimal amount of exercise? Um, Optimum is, again, one of those hack things that you want a quick answer, so I can give you a, a little bit long-winded answer. So the Australian Physical Activity Recommendation uh, recommends 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. And moderate is like walking um, at a moderate pace, and vigorous will be something like running and cycling really fast and, you know, getting your um, out of breath and heart pumping. So when you think about it spread out through a week, that's not a lot. It should be <laughs> quite easy to achieve. And then you introduce the concept of sedentary lifestyles. And last year, there was a paper published in The Lancet that um, pulled data from a, a large a large number of cohort studies, and what it found is that um, if we want to undo the harms of sitting, then we might need to up that limit a bit. So two to three times of that amount, pretty much is as the data show, then you can sit and not being harmed from prolonged sitting. Mm. Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, yeah. Can I add something yeah. about the... Uh, so the guideline is about 150 minutes of uh, moderate to vigorous activity a week. Moderate to vigorous means uh, the equivalent of fast walking and higher intensity. Uh, however, in Australia, less than 50% of adults meet that, despite this being uh, quite... For most of us, I guess, it sounds like quite, quite reasonable. Uh, and if we are actually to measure inactivity in a more thorough <coughs> way, in a more accurate way. The physical activity guidelines are about how much people walk, that 150 minutes per week, that's one component. Another component is how much we look after our muscles. And the guideline here is that we should do at least two sessions, the general population, adults should do two sessions 
of uh, strength training per week. There is no specification about specific dose, specific uh, duration. It's twice a week. If we are to consider the strength guideline as well, the prevalence of physical inactivity from 50% in Australia rockets up to 85%, making physical inactivity by far the largest, the most prevalent risk factor, higher than obesity, diabetes, uh, blood high blood pressure, and all sorts of other uh, chronic conditions or risk factors. Questions, folks? We've got a hand up, up here. I have heard that if you do too much of jogging, it's bad for the knees, and that we could potentially have hip or knee replacement problems if we do jogging. Uh, so I just want to get some views on jogging vis-a-vis -vis walking, especially for people over 55. Uh, so there is data that people who are uh, physically active, including runners, actually have less arthritis than people who don't run. Um, that's one thing. However, there's also uh, data that if you have an injury due to running or something else and you then do that kind of high-impact exercise, you'll actually increase your risk of joint damage and possibly go on to arthritis. So it really comes down to whether or not you've had an injury. Um, and many older adults that, so I'm a geriatrician, so I see older adults, and certainly arth arthritis of the knees is one of the most common problems that we see. And um, in those individuals who already have arthritis, we certainly don't recommend high-impact exercise, um, but you can get high-intensity aerobic exercise um, by doing something like stair climbing or um, walking up an incline, for example, or alternatively, you can do weightlifting exercise, um, which is a lot of the time actually far more um, tolerable for people with lower extremity arthritis than is even simple walking. So um, there are certainly ways to get high-intensity, robust versions of exercise without resorting to high-impact exercise if you have joint damage. Question, yes, in the front, thank you. And then over here, go here first. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Maria and uh, Manos and Melody. Um, you know, the rules, rules, the guidelines for moderate vigorous uh, exercise and vigorous at, you know, uh, within the exercise medicine movement are well known, but the media has recently been messaging quite a bit, uh, and the average person hears at the intention of the, the notion of high-intensity interval training. I'd like Maria to identify for the individual and Manos or Melody for the population what you think about or what you think you know about the use of high-intensity interval training as useful, maybe biologically efficacious, uh, for both the individual person who may be sedentary and geriatric, Maria, and Manos and Melody for the population as, a, as an epidemiological way of promoting seven minutes of high-intensity exercise is all you need per day, which is what the media has been recently messaging. Thank you. So does everybody know what, what high-intensity yeah, interval training you. is? Great. Um, so this is a, a version of aerobic exercise uh, in which you do uh, intervals, which can be um, as short as 30 seconds or so uh, and as long as four minutes. So the most common paradigm would be four minutes as an interval. Um, and you do that interval at a very high heart rate, so between 85 and 95% of your peak heart rate, uh, average 90%. And then in between each interval, you would have a rest period where you would exercise at a moderate intensity, something like 60% of your peak heart rate. So depending on the, the type of um, program, you could do one interval, um, warm-up interval, cool-down, 
or you could do four intervals with interspersed rest periods. So how long it takes you would vary anywhere between, say, 10 minutes and uh, even 25 minutes, depending on how many intervals you do. So the value of this kind of exercise is that it's more efficient in terms of time, so you don't have to spend 45 minutes doing your aerobic exercise. Um, it's, it's more efficient. And uh, the other advantage is that it is the way athletes train. And so we know from athletic studies as well as um, uh, clinical studies that the fitness gains are greater with this kind of training than they are with, with in general with moderate intensity aerobic training. Um, so the question, Glenn, I think was, what was your question? Is it better? Is it the same? Well, that's sprint training, which is yeah, which is probably a bit different. I, I think the clinical data is really is mostly about uh, high intensity interval training, where the interval is uh, your heart rate is up at that rate for you know at least two minutes, if not four minutes. Um, and I think there are, there are a good number of studies now suggesting that not only is it safe, um, but it's at least as beneficial as moderate intensity interval training for things like um, heart failure, coronary artery disease, diabetes. Uh, Etc. It may not be more effective, but it's probably as effective, uh, and the fitness benefits are probably a bit greater. So, in, from my perspective, it's doable. If you don't like spending a long time of exercise, it's good. Um, and there may be populations, in fact, for whom it's preferable than moderate intensity exercise for 30 or 40 minutes, because, for example, if you have um, very uh, si significant um, respiratory disease and you can't. Um, uh, sustain long periods of aerobic exercise, a short interval is more doable. Um, if you have arthritis and you can't weight bear for that long, a short interval is probably more doable. Um, so I think for clinical populations, um, it actually might be a preferable way to train, but I think the jury's out yet as to whether it actually is better than moderate intensity um, it, for the general population. I think it's a matter of preference. Just a quick uh, thing on language. Clinical populations, what do you mean by that? Uh, people who have certain chronic diseases and you're actually <laughs> treating them with exercise for that disease, like heart failure, diabetes, arthritis, et cetera, as opposed to healthy people who have no diseases and just want to be active. Okay. And at population level, what do we yeah. know? If you see uh, population level surveys that ask people what is the number one barrier to them being physically active, that's time, time poverty, basically. So I think high-intensity interval training addresses a very important uh, limitation, a very important barrier, and therefore it's, a good, it's good that it's been discussed. On the other hand, I'm thinking that who really needs to increase it? How are we going to experience the largest benefits in the health of the population is by moving those who do nothing, literally nothing or next to nothing, to doing something. So for those people, High-intensity interval training has huge potential, in theory. In practice, is it realistic to expect someone who, has, who hasn't done exercise for 30 years uh, in their mid, uh, in the, in late, late in life or in mid-age to go back to doing high-intensity interval training, high-intensity training in general? I have my doubts about that. So I think it is an approach that should be offered as an option in clinical settings, perhaps with the assistance of the broader healthcare system, with the motivation in the, uh, of the clinician, but it's not 
a panacea. It's not high intensity interval training is not going to solve the physical inactivity problem. We should be clear about that. Do you want to add anything? I think um, I think most of my points are already covered, and uh, I see high intensity interval training as something with great potential. Like what Manuel says, the time varying from a behavioral point of view, that is going to be. Um, a good message that we can promote, but at the population level, I don't think we are at the stage to to include that in our physical activity recommendation. For example, we're still at the stage just trying to get the population to move, and to get them to move at the high intensity interval training level um, as part of the guidelines. It's, it's it's very challenging. Can yeah. I just make yeah. one point? Yeah. So one thing I think to realize is that for what is high intensity for Manos is not high intensity for um, an 85-year-old who's never done exercise. And in fact, that would feel like light intensity to Manos. So when you say high intensity interval training, we're not really talking about running for 90-year-olds. We're talking about something which for them feels really hard, which could be climbing up a flight of stairs, for example, uh, might be at 90% of their peak heart rate. Uh, so we're about to start a study, for example, called BRAIN, where we're going to be actually doing high intensity interval training versus high intensity power training in 80-year-olds who have mild cognitive impairment to try and prevent dementia. Uh, none of these people will have exercised at all in the past. Uh, we will be doing this four-minute interval um, type of interval training, um, but the level that they'll be working at will be relative to them. So whatever feels 90% of peak effort for them is actually what the interval will be like, which would be very, very different for most of the people in this room. So. Yes, for a clarification question to ask you guys, there's just so much conflicting information on exercise and diet and um, everything, like even just swimming laps and it's like, oh my God, the chlorine's toxic or can I eat that or I have to do seven minutes but then this website says 20 minutes but then now, like you said, the Trump thing is like, oh, you don't even need to exercise and I'm like, amazing. So it's like, what, where well, do you, you where him? should I, no, <laughs> <laughs> where do I, where, do, can, what do you do? Like, it's just, I just don't know who to believe, what to do, like, yeah. Is your question about physical activity, diet, because can you be specific? All of it, All of it. okay. You know what, there was a Sydney Morning Herald article today about five or six things you could do if you wanted to extend your life and live a happy, healthy, productive life. You might want to give us a little synopsis because that's kind of everything. That's everything, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, we tend to think of, you know, what we can do um, in terms of our personal behaviours, like Manos was describing, lifestyle. Um, and I think, you know, there, there, are, there is a, a large body of literature about what, what leads to um, a healthy life and a prolonged life. And I think it does come down to physical activity on some level is good. Um, and, um, that's, uh, and that can be a variety of different kinds of activities. But um, uh, I think we can't really prescribe a single dose. I think it's just good to be active, as Mano said, and go from being sedentary to somewhat active. Um, second, diet. I think uh, there are a lot of diets out there, a lot of fad diets, but if you look across the literature at the common elements of the healthful diets in terms of longevity and prevention of dementia, et cetera, the, the common theme generally is that they are primarily plant-based animal uh, rather than animal protein. That's number one. Um, they don't have a lot of processed foods and simple sugars, so they're complex carbohydrates and, and whole grains and natural foods. Um, they don't tend to have a lot of uh, saturated fats, which is why, because they don't have much animal protein in them. Uh, so the fats if, that are in these healthful diets tend to be 
um, either um, monounsaturated, like extra virgin olive oil, um, or, or, or other kinds of unsaturated fats. Um, and not high in alcohol. Um, that would be the other sort of common thing. So those kinds of, so that a Mediterranean diet is like that, but there are other kinds of similar diets around the world that have been generally linked to longevity and the prevention of most of the chronic diseases that afflict sort of um, westernized cultures. Um, the third thing, which again, Manos mentioned, and Melody is not smoking, so smoking is bad and is one of, you know, probably the most, although it's not the most prevalent um, unhealthy behavior anymore, at least in most countries, um, it's one of the worst in terms of, of almost every health outcome you can think of. And then I think there's two things that people don't really think about as much that probably are at least as important in terms of longevity. Um, and the first of those would be social connectedness, so having a sense of uh, social integration, and, and that's measured in lots and lots of different ways. Sometimes it's about um, the strength of your personal relationships and your perception of the support that you receive from those relationships or uh, the intimacy in those relationships or having a confidant. So that's, that's one aspect, uh, and being engaged in the community around you in some way. Uh, and the other aspect is um, having a sense of uh, purpose and sense that, you're, that there is something bigger than yourself. Um, and that you have um, a purpose in life in some way. And sometimes that manifests itself in a very uh, individual way in terms of things like um, uh, a type of meditative practice, for example, or a sense of altruism. Uh, sometimes it manifests itself in volunteerism uh, or caregiving behaviors. But those two aspects of social connectedness and a sense of purpose in life are actually in some studies, twice as important as what kind of physical activity you do or what kind of nutritional diet you eat or don't eat. So I think as you know, I'm a physician, and so we tend not to think about these things as much as you know we should probably, um, but those things are not maybe as much in our control as some other things, but they're probably at least, if not more important. But those are the, you know, the five things that I would say that uh, if you were <laughs> gonna focus on anything and you wanted to live longer and be healthier, those would be the things that I would focus on. That is fascinating to me to hear that social connectedness uh, and finding a meaning or a purpose in life that's not about me but it's about something bigger and participating in that is fascinating. And uh, as Maria said, as clinicians, we tend not to you may not tend not to to think of that kind of thing. Who's ever had that kind of health advice from their general practitioner or health physician? Go and fall in love and find a purpose in life that's and right. live Be longer. More altruistic. All the hands. Do it. One person. <laughs> <laughs> Two. Three. Um, and yet it may be as important, if not more That's important. That's right, and it's actually even, like somebody has just written a paper where they looked at the reason for volunteering. So volunteering is something that has been associated with longevity and the prevention of dementia, for example. Um, but when you look at why people volunteer, it turns out that the mortality benefit is only there in people who volunteer for altruistic reasons. People who volunteer because they think it will make them healthier or happier or make them feel better about themselves, they actually have no mortality benefit whatsoever. So even when you volunteer or you're a caregiver, if you do it in a sort of selfish, uh, resentful way, you actually don't reap the health benefits from that activity. So um, yeah, I think altruism and empathy really trumps all when it comes to health. Gee, God's watching, someone's watching, someone knows. Question. And then I'm over here. I'm in your um, comment Jack. about um, doctors not prescribing social things. I'm, I'm aware of a study that's been, it's in place now up in Lismore where they're encouraging doctors to write social prescriptions for injured workers. 
It's an interesting thing. I'm just curious, why do you think that, that or do you think that, that this focus on the connectedness and the other purpose benefits are, are starting to filter down into training for doctors? Is, is your question, are they starting to filter down? Yeah, is it starting no. to filter down? In fact, there was just an article in JAMA, I think yesterday, showing that as residents, interns and residents go through their medical, tr medical you know, residency programs, they become less and less and less empathetic over those four years. Uh, so my yeah. son's an intern right now, so it's shocking. I send him these articles all the time and say, don't lose <laughs> don't it, do don't this. lose it. <laughs> um, because as you go through, you become, one can become jaded and um, you know, incredibly negative towards the patients that you're trying to care for. So yeah. I think it's a risk and you, because you're tired and you're overwhelmed and the problems are so overwhelming, um, is a risk to lose that idealism and that sense that um, you know, th there's nothing more important than you can be as a healthcare provider than, than have empathy. There's nothing more important. But keeping that over the lifespan of your career is, is sometimes a challenge. I don't want to go off topic, but is this also partly um, the compartmentalization of health as clinicians in the I training? I think so. I mean, yeah. it's hard. It's so broad now, the knowledge we have, that it's hard to be good at everything. Mm. I mean, I'm a geriatrician, and so we're supposed to be kind of good at everything, but most people are, you know, organ system physicians, and so you learn about the kidney in great depth, but you really don't remember the heart very much. Um, so it's very hard to be good and in-depth, have in-depth knowledge of everything, and so there is a tendency to kind of um, compartmentalize how you view the person and how you view the body. But uh, it's always to your benefit to obviously look at that kidney as living in a body that's living in a family, that's living in a community. Um, that's the only way you can really help people. Thank you. What factors would you emphasize in adequate hydration in exercise as one ages? Hydration in, in exercise as we age, how important is it and how do you hydration. quantify it? Uh, that's not something I, I know much about. Um, I mean, I think there is a tendency for older adults to be sort of on the verge of dehydration sometimes. The sense of thirst is a little bit diminished with aging because of changes um, in, in the brain and the thirst center. And so um, I think you don't need to overdo it and be carrying your Evian bottles, you know, with you on every run around the track. But um, I think... Um, there is a need to maybe drink when you don't feel thirsty, perhaps. Uh, certainly if you're on certain medications like diuretics that could predispose you to dehydration, that might be you know, even more of a worry. So there isn't a need to overdo it, but I think just um, adequate nutrition before exercise um, is, is a good idea, yeah. Good evening. My questions for the panel. Many studies have suggested that health benefits cycling are enormous, but my question is the danger of cycling on the roads. How do the, do the health benefits of cycling stack up the risk of injury from riding on Sydney roads? <laughs> Good question. Is, that is a fantastic question. And as a cyclist myself, I often have to celebrate every time when I reach a destination without being killed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's one. So first, to answer your question, there has been study done to take into account of factors of injuries and air pollution that you, you, you breathe in while you're riding in Sydney and, and to stack that against physical activity. And the answer is still, it's health promoting the cycle. Of course, we, we're looking at the population level. For that one person killed um, while cycling, that is not the case. Um, and I think that's really um, the reason why I'm always interested in the, the intersecting area of environment, um, behavior, and health. And I think 
Um, there is a lot that we, we still have to do to um, improve our cycling conditions, not only just in terms of cycling infrastructures like bike paths and shared road, but also in terms of driver's behavior, the norms for cycling. I happened to be um, in the Netherlands about just two weeks ago, and that was absolutely the, the mecca for cycling. And it's not only because that they, they have bike paths everywhere, there's a car riding, there's a separate bike path so you feel safe, but also the society really embraced cycling as the culture. So everyone knows how to interact with cyclists. So I think you know Australia is still quite behind at the moment and there has been no promising trend, at least in the last five years, about increasing cycling. So I think you know there's um, a lot we still need to do to get people to ride more and to ride safely. And quite the uh, opposite, actually. We're making, we're pedaling backwards in many ways with this new legislation in the state in New South Wales, for example, uh, with those uh, extravagant fines for not wearing helmets and not having the bell uh, from $78 to $390, <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it is. That, that acts for many people, that acted as a deterrent, especially when some high profile individuals were fined $600 for not wearing a helmet, $390 for not wearing a helmet, and then another. 200 for the bell, and then they were on the, on the <laughs> sidewalk as well. So, uh, yeah. Did you get one of these fines? It sounds no, but very I, I, after that, I haven't cycled to work since because <laughs> I live in an area that I rely on the sidewalks to get to, to, to cycle. I cannot cycle mm. on the. It's Princess Highway. It's like the suicide to, to cycle on Princess Highway. Can so I just say one thing about cycling? Yeah, sure. Just um, with something that people may not know is that cycling is a great aerobic exercise, obviously. The one thing it doesn't do is increase your bone mineral density. And in fact, cyclists and swimmers have much lower bone mineral density than um, other kinds of uh, individuals, uh, including people who don't exercise at all. And so a risk for osteoporosis can develop in people who swim and cycle only as their form of exercise. So because it isn't weight-bearing, and in fact, you're spending a lot of time not weight-bearing, um, if you do it a lot, um, you can't protect your bones that way. So you do need to complement it with a bone enhancing form of exercise, which would be something like weight lifting exercise, for example. It's interesting. I saw there was a chap uh, who just uh, spent 80 days cycling around the world. You might have seen it on the news in the last 24 hours. He said, I haven't walked for months. And when so I got like off the bike... it's like going into outer space. <laughs> your, mus your bones are very atrophied he after did. that. He said, I walked up a set of stairs and it hurt. Yeah. Uh, so it's not all things to all people. Who else is doing it well besides the Netherlands? And how do we make those healthy choices easier? Who else? Cycling. Uh, uh, other cities? Copenhagen. Copenhagen yeah, is Denmark. Denmark. Copenhagen, in particular Copenhagen, not everywhere in Denmark. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have spent some time there very recently, mm. and it has been an epiphany. I've been talking about it all the time. My little is laughing and giggling because I've been going on and on and on about Copenhagen uh, since. It's not only, it's not only that um, the fact that uh, w since 2015 uh, there is a larger number of bicycles entering the center of Copenhagen than cars, for example. So it's not only there are fewer cars because bicycles have taken over. It's like the, the whole city has a, a lot more humane vibe to it. It's like, and you realize that, especially when you ride a bicycle. So the first couple of days of my visit, I was taking taxis everywhere, a waste of time because traffic is horrible, but no one is concerned about traffic there because it's like, you, you want a car? Okay, fair enough, have it then. Have, be, be stuck in traffic. It's, Amazingly humane. It's really good for um, 
social con connectedness. It's a lot easier to interact with people on a bicycle. It's good for businesses, frankly, and because it's a lot easier to go shopping if you're on a, on a bicycle compared to being in the car all the time in the, in the city center. So I think we should be, when we talk to politicians, because <coughs> it's the politicians who will eventually make the decisions to make the environment more conducive to cycling and the environment more conducive to physical activity, is we should be emphasizing these benefits that are well beyond the health benefits for cycling. We're talking about so societal benefits, we're talking about economic benefits, perhaps. Yeah, and I... Melody, I sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Australia still has a lot of potential for increasing cycling, because believe it or not, um, about half or more than half of the Australian ha households have access to a bike. So people at least are contemplating it. And whether that transfers uh, to long-term commuting cycling, that's another story. And I do really want to encourage um, all the audience here to um, you know, give cycling a try. And also, just remember your behavior, either as a driver or pedestrian, that might also shape our cycling culture. So I think everyone is really accountable, whether you cycle or not. Because you know, to be honest, a driver, a pedestrian, all these interactions really are part of the norms for cycling. Interesting. Uh, how many people here, hands up, cycle for leisure, pleasure, or for commuting? At least once or twice a week. And how many more people would cycle if they felt safe and there were cycleways and it was supported? Yeah, right. So um, policy decisions are really important. Question over here. Um, I have a question uh, that came up in a talk in this exact room a couple of years ago, and it was about the fact that, you know, we've done so much and come so far to make our lives easier. You know, we get food delivered, we can get online shopping, we can get Ubers everywhere. And what this speaker uh, mentioned was that we kind of have hit that sweet spot where we've made our lives too easy that now, you know, everything around us is actually an obesogenic environment. So we're kind of up against, you know, it's impossible in some ways to be healthy. Um, I just wanted to know what your comments are about that and do you think that we've gone too far in all the things that have made our lives easier with technology and the advancements in technology that now we're at this point where we're kind of chasing our tails and trying to go back to the way things used to be in terms of both diet um, and, and food, you know, the you know, how food's manufactured today, but also exercise and, and lifestyle, you know, everything, the stress is high, sleep is low, physical activity is low, you know. What, just what's your comment on that and whether you agree with that? Are we living in an obesogenic culture? Yeah. To me? And how do we start to chip away at that? <coughs> um, the interesting thing is um, what you mentioned because I, I did a lot of research on the built environment, you know, how it changes from you know, very pedestrian-oriented to car-oriented, and now in some countries, some particular cities actually changing back. So I think it's related to what you're talking about, how you know, um, the technology, technological advances have made our lives so convenient that people drive everywhere, and now all of a sudden there's a drive for the so-called neo-traditional neighborhood, which means you know, it's going back to the traditional, but it's like a new trend of going back to the lifestyle. And I think when we think about technology, um, I hate to use this cliche that it's a double-edged sword, um, but it really is. For example, you mentioned about Uber. Um, 
sure, it makes our life more convenient. It makes us, you know, just step out of the house and just go somewhere. But it also provides us with opportunity of not getting a car, not owning a car at all. And perhaps you could supplement that with, um, you know, active travel, cycling, and those things. So we we can't. I mean, the, I think what I'm trying to get is we can't stop the technology from advancing because. To the large extent, it's still making our life better. But I think how we use technology to actually help us to choose healthier lifestyle and to build a healthier environment. Can I, yeah. can I, can I add something? Yeah. Uh, I think the main problem here is that technological progress and the digital revolution didn't come, didn't come with a manual. So it's very important to acknowledge that we cannot stop this progress. This will continue because there are commercial pressures. The world is heading a certain direction. We cannot say that uh, we won't be allowing uh, uh, deliveries, uh, food deliveries uh, through delivery or whatever. That, that's, it's very important to acknowledge that the revolution in the health of the population and the improvement in health-related behaviors is not going to happen through the goodwill of individuals. We need to work towards environmental changes, make the environment, make the healthy option, the easy option, the fun option, the convenient option. And there are lots of applications of this principle in the space of physical activity, what we mentioned before about cycling and making cycling the cool option, making cycling the fun option, uh, the pleasant option, the convenient option. So while we're waiting for politicians to do what's the right thing and to make healthy choices, easy choices, from a financial point of view, from an infrastructure point of view, from an environmental point of view, Melody, how do you build exercise and physical activity into, our, into your life incidentally? How can we do that? And we're all given we're all time poor. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of concepts we need to clarify before thinking about building and, and physical activity into our lifestyle. So, you know, for one thing, we need to understand that it doesn't have to be intentional exercise. It doesn't have to be that I have to leave work at this time to drive to the gym and work out for an hour. It could be something incidental that you, you're doing physical activity, which could be for any purposes without um, purposely exercising. So things even like, you know, taking the train instead of driving so that you can have the 10 minutes of walking to the train station at the origin and another seven minutes at the destination, probably a little bit during the interchange. So all these things add up. You know, earlier we had this question of what is the ultimate um, level of physical activity? And I, we always say just move more and sit less. And all these times add up. And, uh, you know, I think the second thing I think, um, I, I think I want to emphasize here is that, because the question of running come up quite a lot here, um, it is important to know that, you know, although from the physiological point of view, you should have um, a wide range of physical activities that complement each other, like what Maria was saying. From the behavioral science point of view, choose something that works for you, that you enjoy, and don't force yourself to do the things that you think everyone else expects you to do. And I think that's also very important for sustainability. And uh, in terms of the third, from the behavior point of view, I want to emphasize is um, 
um, try to buddy up with someone when you try to incorporate physical activity into your lifestyle because when you're doing it with someone, makes it more fun, make it more socially reinforcing, and make it more sustainable, and then it kind of goes back to the social connectedness that you mentioned as well. Great advice. So uh, we can add, add these things together. We don't have to do it all in one session. Make it fun, make it social. Yeah. And also when it comes to incidental physical activity, make those stairs your best friend. There is <laughs> oh nothing. Yes, stairs are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only incidental physical activity uh, that pushes the, the body, makes you half and puff. Reaches, for many people it will reach vigorous intensity, I would say. Fly, uh, 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 climbing up four or five uh, flights of stairs. And when you take the stairs instead of the lift, it's better for the climate as well, <laughs> for the environment. Maria? Uh, I'd just like to say one thing, which is um, I hate to exercise with other people. Um, <laughs> I would never take a group exercise class, so I lift weights by myself every day um, because I don't like to exercise with other people. So I do think that um, you don't need to exercise in company. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the clinical benefits uh, in clinical trials, um, there is no evidence for any disease that I could think of where group exercise is better than individual exercise when it's been looked at for psychological outcomes, physical outcomes, etc. So though I agree it is one way to socialize, um, I think for people who um, like to exercise alone, um, it's okay too. It works just as well. So you're talking about a variety if, you need, of choices. if you need motivation, body up. But yeah, if you don't, then if you don't want to, don't. <laughs> Question here. Uh, documentation. Oh, um, some well-known lecturers documentation recently about the um, bad, oh, the bad, bad effects of sugar increased in our diet, com and going so far as to compare it to as harmful as alcohol and other drugs, um, in the damage you'll do to our internal organs. How reliable is that information? We we all know too, too much sugar is bad for us. How how reliable is that information that it's so bad for us? And as the world's what fourth largest sugar product producer here in Australia. Is that something that we need a, a serious policy shift on? What's the, da what's the data on sugar and its contribution to poor health? <coughs> Maria? Uh, so is it, your question is how bad is it? Is the information that's been like around recently in lots of years, is, is it that bad? Like, Is this the new um, ec epidemic that we're facing as, as part of our Western lifestyle? And is that something that requires more government policy to change rather than Right. Right. Well, uh, you, you might want to talk about policy, but I mean, I think in terms of, um, I, I think there are no single evil nutrients. I think you know, dietary behavior is a behavior that that really should be looked at as a whole dietary thing. And I think that the the problem in the, I guess the 80s and 90s when fat was the evil thing is that everything was focused on changing fat and not really much attention to the rest of the diet. So I think that approach is never good, um, but I do think that um, if you think about the healthful diets, they tend to be um, lower, certainly, in sugar, uh, um, isolated uh, foods and sources of sugar, and they have complex carbohydrates instead, and there seem to be relationships with things like dementia, um, diabetes, um, heart disease, and, um, and other things that are related to high intakes of sugar. So I think it is... Uh, it's certainly there, but it's not the only isolated nutrient to look at. I think a huge culprit is the food uh, mega, you know, industrial complex that controls all of our food around the world, um, and that is a policy thing. Maybe Manos wants to. 
talk about uh, policy. No, I don't have to, anything else that yeah, you covered. Yeah, so I mean, we can't change what General Foods does by ourselves, General Mills. Um, I think we have to, we can change our own behavior, but you know, these mega complex, uh, industrial complexes are controlling our food supply. So the only way you can get around that is by refusing to partake in processed foods and sticking to foods that aren't processed and that you just, you know, buy in their natural state. That's the way to avoid excess sugar, really. And the thing is that, uh, the, yeah, the industry, the food industry, they don't really want to uh, have informed consumers. And that's why there has been a movement in several countries around the world to have the food, uh, the traffic light system, labeling system, that uh, classifies food uh, by the color according to how healthy or unhealthy they are. And there has been huge resistance and huge lobbying efforts from the food industry all over the world. And it, uh, as far as I'm aware, it has not implemented in a single country yet. A very simple thing, just telling people, actually, this food stuff may not be, you know, best for you. Could I just add one more thing? Because I think that comment was somehow related to the first questions about, you know, all these um, uh, trends of this advice, that advice at the population level that you, you just mentioned. Because um, oftentimes what we hear is the, the media does sensationalize things. You know, they like to have a simple hack for your better life, and they also like to have a one single villain that is responsible for everything. And I think the principle that Maria has been emphasizing here is very important that when we look at diet and lifestyle in general, it's, it's, a, it's a complex thing. We need to look at the components and rather than just looking at one at a time. So I think what, what you mentioned about the common principles, the common components among healthy diet, it's something that we should look at rather than just single out, if I cut sugar out of my diet, I'm gonna have a much healthier lifestyle. So <clears throat> I think my question touches on the intent of a previous question as well about the sheer amount of different uh, sources of conflicting data that are out there uh, regarding all these health outcomes. Now, uh, I'm a programmer, and in my field, um, when we are comparing solutions on various categories, there are various consultancies like ThoughtWorks and Gartner that will put them on a simple graph. They'll graph them on axes, you know. These ones are the best, these ones perhaps are the most cost-effective, and, and they'll give us an easy way to compare technologies. And I feel like there must be something like this for the diet space or for supplements or for all this stuff. Like I personally imagine there must be in Sydney Uni somewhere a, a graph, you know, these, these kinds of diets are terrible, these ones are better, uh, these ones are more scientific, these ones are more achievable behaviorably. Uh, like do you guys produce something like that? Does anyone? Uh, is there a, a, a tech radar for health? The best way to have uh, to get four different opinions is to get four academics in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I said, perhaps not to purpose, uh, not to um, suppose the answer here, but um, as I said at the outset, for every complex problem, there's a simple, obvious answer that's wrong. I can give yeah. you um, an anecdote about my personal experience. Two years ago, we wrote a paper on the benefit of vigorous intensity physical activity, and. Uh, that paper received a lot of media, and then 70% um, of them reported wrongly. And we actually did a content analysis, a little bit interested in you know what sort of media reported correctly and what sort of media reported incorrectly. And uh, you know we we did find that you know with media sources like New York Times and um, Times Magazine, 
the, econ the economist, and they actually had proper interview with us, and they asked us to clarify, and they did their background research, so it's a lot more likely to be right. And then Daily Telegraph was one of the worst ones. That, <laughs> that surprising one. But the audience here probably, I would say, don't read it. So we, we do see... Um, significant differences in terms of the sources and the, the correctness of their reporting. But I, I can only say that's a case example of the one specific paper, different outlets reporting on a single paper, and we can <laughs> expect the audience to, to fact check everything that they get in the media. Just, just an anecdote. There are scientific tools to make this systematic synthesis of the evidence, meta-analysis and systematic reviews and things like that. But I would say that they're still far from perfect. And their interpretation, the interpretation of their results as well is subject to different interpretations. They could be subject to different interpretations as well. You're also saying at the, at the outset that we are still in our infancy about sorting through the evidence about what works, what doesn't, what we don't know. Well, yeah. yeah, and I think even when you think, you say, well, I'm studying the diet, I'm studying the Mediterranean diet, so you can, you can, you know, pick that apart as a scientist and say, well, that means it's extra virgin olive oil, which is high in phenol content, um, et cetera. Or you can look at actually what the diet, the, the true Mediterranean traditional diet is, and it's actually a combination of a plant-based um, diet based on whole foods, plus lots of exercise, plus a min minimal to moderate amount of wine, plus a lot of eating in company, never eating alone, plus cooking at home, plus growing herbs, plus um, something else. So that Mediterranean lifestyle is actually what predicts longevity and, and prevention of heart disease in the Ansel Keys studies. It's not just you know, buying some cobra and extra virgin olive oil and adding it to your steak. Um, <laughs> that actually won't work. So I think diet is particularly tricky. And every time we've tried to pull out a single thing that, well, that must be it. That must be what, you know, the diet is. Like um, um, vitamin B, for example, and cancer. Every time we've tried to do that, we've actually not succeeded. And uh, or, you know, diets high in fish are good for preventing certain diseases, but then you take out fish oil and give that and it doesn't work. So it's, it's really, diet is particularly needed to be studied in its holistic form, I think. Uh, and also people who eat different diets have different physical activity levels, different social connectedness, different levels of smoking, et cetera. And um, you can't really assume that the benefit is from the particular nutrient that you think is representing that diet unless you have measured everything. And very few people measure everything. So uh, it sounds like you're saying we, we can't atomize this kind of advice. Right. It's embedded in culture and social and a whole range right. of things. Yeah. We have a question up here, and then there's a gentleman who wants to ask a question over here. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, am I interrupting? Or Okay, good. Um, yeah, sorry. Just to return to that earlier point about altruism and how that's related to uh, longevity, particularly with respect to you know, people who volunteer altruistically, only and only people who volunteer altruistically actually get the health benefits from that. I'm just curious whether you think there might be any sort of like neurobiological underpinnings to that, um, and whether or not that effect has been replicated. Um, because yeah, coming from a sort of scientific background, looking at it, um, that seems like a factor that you could you know when you break down volunteering into all of its different facets, it seems like uh, one of the things that might emerge just from a false positive. If it's not replicated. Uh, no, there's lots of studies. So there's a center in Berkeley called the Center for Greater Good, which you could look up. And they have uh, lots and lots of studies that they collect and, and um, report on, on topics like altruism and empathy. And also at Stanford, there's a center for studies of, um, 
I think it's called Compassion and Altruism, I think is the, is the acronym for the center at Stanford, which again, they conduct lots of research and, and are looking into the neurobiology of it. Um, there are certain areas of the brain that seem to um, be activated with uh, uh, empathetic practices like loving kindness meditation, for example, um, an area called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is responsible for emotional memory retrieval and, and other things. And that's one area that's been shown to enlarge with either um, forgiveness meditation or mindfulness meditation. And very interestingly, it also enlarges with weightlifting exercise in our studies. So not sure why weightlifting makes you um, enlarge the same part of your brain that makes that is enlarged with um, empathy, but but it does. So there are, and there are other studies looking at um, functional MRS to look at the connectedness between different areas of the brain. So. There are lots and lots of studies looking at the neurobiology, um, and there are also people looking at um, neuroendocrinology, so looking at changes in stress hormones in particular that seem to be different in people who are uh, expressing traits of altruism and empathy uh, compared to people who don't. So they have different stressor responses to what would be a stressful, you know, acute stressful paradigm, for example. May I ask you to comment on the effect of uh, good, good diet and exercise on uh, aging? I'm sorry, what's oh, sorry, the question? Sorry, not on aging, but on decline, mental decline. Oh, on cognitive decline? Yeah. Sure. So, um, do you guys want to? Oh, sorry. Um, um, so there are there are a lot of epidemiological studies, like the ones that um, Melody and, and Manus have been referring to, that have looked at, um, for example, patterns of physical activity that predict either um, slower rates of cognitive decline or onset of dementia risk or risk of incident dementia. And um, it's certainly, I would say, the vast majority of studies that have studied it well, <coughs> excuse me, have shown that you can reduce incident dementia risk by about 20 or 30 percent with high levels of physical activity compared to low levels of physical activity. Uh, so that's one line of evidence. Um, there are also other studies that have looked at physical fitness and um, typically cross-sectional studies, but sometimes longitudinal ones. And they have shown that people who have higher fitness levels, both aerobic fitness as well as higher muscle strength, actually have slower rates of cognitive decline if you follow them over, over eight years or so. And then there are what we call intervention studies where you can take people who are either healthy or who have um, signs of early cognitive impairment called mild cognitive impairment or even dementia, and then you can give them an uh, exercise intervention. And those studies, again, um, uh, on, in general, if you sort of piece them together and, and summarize the results, uh, show that both aerobic exercise as well as weightlifting exercise can um, improve cognitive function, even in people who have already developed some signs of dementia. So in particular, we study weightlifting exercise, um, but others study aerobic exercise, and um, we're still working out the dose response characteristics, but it certainly looks like higher doses are better. So this is an example where we're talking about using exercise as medicine. So just like any pill that you would use, um, it has dose response characteristics, and um, for some diseases, higher doses are better. For other diseases, it doesn't matter. For cognition, it looks like doses that induce higher fitness adaptations are better um, than doses that don't. And so that's what we really need to figure out now is um, from a preventive standpoint, it looks like it's good. But from an intervention standpoint, if you really want to treat somebody who's having cognitive impairment, um, we certainly need to know more about what the actual 
uh, optimal dose is. But for the moment, I would say um, higher intensity is better than lower intensity. Before we go up here, I just had a supplementary question about that, given what you were saying about how um, the Mediterranean diet is embedded in a culture that is embedded in a family and a whole range of other things. Are we at risk of oversimplifying um, what we think we know about neurodegeneration, cognitive decline, and talking about physical activity and strength? Are there other elements that may also be important? Uh, for cognitive decline? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, the other the issues that I mentioned earlier, social connectedness. In fact, there's a study looking at social networks and um, risk of dementia and, and mortality, and the effect of social connectedness and engagement is actually greater than the effects of diet, physical activity, or even, and it's about on a par with smoking. So I think we are in danger of oversimplifying if we're looking for one magic bullet to prevent dementia. Um, and the problem is that not every study measures everything. And so um, if they measure physical activity, for example, and not diet, it's probably true that the people who are physically active are eating differently than the people who aren't. And so, uh, and they may or may not be more socially connected um, or more altruistic. Um, so unless you measure everything, you can't really know the full story. That's the truth. Yeah. Question up here. Yeah. Yep. So um, before you were saying... Um, when you go to a gym, you should go with a friend because it'll motivate you. But what happens when the motivation disappears? Because motivation is only temporary. So what would you recommend to do to achieve that goal in the long term when, you know, that initial burst has stopped? That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. How to re-motivate yourself? Uh, that's something I've never thought of. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why we kept on emphasizing that um, we want to make the um, physically active choices the, the natural, free, and easy choices. Because what we're hoping, you know, if we create a society like um, some European cities, like, you know, Netherlands and Copenhagen for, for cycling, in a way that it becomes such a natural part of your life, that you don't have to think about it. You're tricked into walking and cycling and all that counts towards your physical activity. Of course, that's our ultimate goal. Yeah, if it's about exercise, and this is just an own opinion, informed opinion, I don't have uh, empirical evidence for that. Uh, it seems that uh, working with a personal trainer could reintroduce that enthusiasm and bring, you, bring people back to the exercise regime. But that's an just an opinion, an observation from my social circles. No easy answers. Um, we've got a mic up here. Yeah. Hello? Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. I was just uh, interested in your views on fasting. Oh. No research experience and no personal experience. Yeah. Uh, was it on fasting? It's fasting, yeah. No, fasting. Um, there, there is mixed evidence, I would say. It, uh, again, going back to the Mediterranean diet, one of the things that we know about the traditional diet is there was a lot of fasting. So this is a diet that was uh, sort of popular in the Greek islands where there are lots and lots of religious holidays that require fasting or semi-fasting. And so that traditional diet that was so protective for heart disease actually had, I think, 120 days of fasting of some sort and either abstinence from meat or abstinence from all food. So, you know, that's one thing we know. Other kinds of sort of more recent versions of, of dieting um, with intermittent periods of either 
uh, usually it's sort of lower calorie intake on the fasting days versus rather than no intake. I think uh, the most recent study I read um, showed that that was no better than just de decreasing the food intake on every day by 25 percent was was the same as having days where you actually had almost no food, you know, two days a week. So. I think fasting is in that level where you're fasting two days a week or three is very hard to sustain. And it's going to be like all the other diets that people uh, can't sustain, like very low calorie diets or um, very high protein, no carbohydrate diets. So those sorts of things that are a bit unnatural are probably less likely to be sustained. Um, and so far, I don't think they have um, vastly greater metabolic or clinical benefits than moderate food intake of a healthful diet. Um, sorry, I just saw a thing on TV the other day where they said that um, uh, aerobic fitness was a better predictor of life expectancy than BMI or um, waist circumference, and I was just wondering if that's true and, you know, if there's an optimal level and will our GPs start making us running treadmills or something from now on? So I was just wondering if that's true or not. That has been around. The idea that uh, being fit and fat, uh, fit and fat is better than... Uh, uh, unfit and slim <laughs> has been around for quite a while, for at least I would say 15. Well, since 1985, Stephen Blair. Yeah, yeah, yeah two, two, two or three decades. Um, uh, and it's, it used to come, lots of evidence used to come from the same group, I would say, from the same group of researchers about this by uh, Stephen Blair, who, is, as it happens, is the most cited and perhaps the most eminent physical activity epidemiologist ever. He has retired now. Um, Not really. Sorry? Not really. No. Yeah, he's semi-retired. <laughs> uh, he's a wonderful person, but as it happens, he's a bit chubby. In the last few years, in the last few years, studies show that perhaps that's not the case. It looks like there are two independent risk factors: low cardiorespiratory fitness and high BMI or high fatness. They act independently of each other. So ideally, one should try to avoid them both. So have high fitness and uh, low BMI. The other thing is that cardiorespiratory fitness is partially genetic. About 50% of your aerobic fitness is, is a genetically determined thing that has nothing to do with how physically active you are. So you don't have complete control of your aerobic fitness level. Um, some of that is genetically determined. So, um, but it, yes, certainly more activity is better in terms of trying to optimize wherever you start from. Question here. I have two questions. One is, uh, Australians seem to take a lot of dietary supplements out of a bottle, pills, tablets. Does the panel have any view on the value of that? And the second question is, uh, cognitive decline. Um, we're encouraged to do Sudokos and crosswords and cryptic crosswords and Baybridge. Uh, does the panel feel that one or another activity is better than another? Right, so in terms of supplements, um, other than vitamin D, which is not really a vitamin because you're meant to make it in your skin, so you're not meant to need to eat it, which is the definition of a vitamin. Um, as you get over past the age of about 70, you don't make it very well, even if you are out in the sun. So vitamin D is something that many, many older people need regardless of sun exposure um, after the age of 70. And that is the one supplement that we almost always as geriatricians look to see if people need and, and need to supplement. Um, the other um, vitamin that is some, which is a vitamin which is sometimes deficient because of aging is vitamin B12 because vitamin B12 is bound to animal protein and 
in order to cleave it from the protein and absorb it, you actually have to have acid in your stomach. Um, so as you get older, you have a condition often called achlorhydria, where you don't actually make enough acid, um, and so you might malabsorb B12, or your doctor has put you on a drug like Nexium because you have a little reflux, and then you're on Nexium forever, and that wipes out the acid in your stomach, which means you can't absorb B12 or zinc or iron or anything else that requires acid. So there is a lot of vitamin B12 deficiency because of drugs that we use and aging, and sometimes people need to take that as a supplement. Other than that, um, there are very few indications for isolated nutritional supplements um, uh, other than you know, unusual deficiency states that aren't part of normal aging. Um, the other question you had was about cognitively stimulating activity. Can I activity. add to the supplements yeah. first? Yeah. Uh, epidemiological studies, epidemiological reviews show, in fact, that uh, supplements intake, syn synthetic supplements intake, is linked to with higher all-cause mortality. I've seen at least a couple of uh, meta-analyses showing that, and I've seen some other reviews showing that there is no effect. But uh, if it points, evidence points one direction, it's towards the harm, not benefit. Right. Um, so the other question was about cognitively stimulating activities that you might do, and um, there is a huge field now of cognitive training, and there are certainly some kinds of cognitive training that work. Um, there are some very popular programs like Luminosity, which actually don't work, um, so don't buy that. Um, and there are things that people do that they think work, like crossword puzzles, which actually have not been shown to be effective at increasing cognition. Um, and those kinds of activities actually sometimes serve as the control group for our randomized trials of proper cognitive training. So for cognitive training to work, it usually is multi-domain, like different parts of your brain being accessed. Um, and then it's progressive, just like exercise would be progressive in terms of um, stimulation and intensity, um, and those kinds of cognitive training activities do work, uh, or certainly cognitively difficult or cognitively complex activities like learning to play a musical instrument, even if you play it badly, it doesn't matter, trying to learn it is really good, uh, learning a new language, um, writing and reading creatively, those kinds of things are actually very stimulating for the brain, but actually Crossword puzzles, which is the one you mentioned, is, is has not ever been shown to improve cognition. Just before I go here, I wanted to get a clarification on what I heard about um, uh, vitamin E, B12, and also the population data about supplements and all cause mortality, because they sounded contradictory. Can you just I think he was talking about <coughs> multivitamins or something. Over, overall, overall I'm multivitamins. About, yeah, clinical supplementation yes. of a vitamin D yes. deficiency yes. or a drug-induced deficiency of B12. Okay. That's very different. So if you measure somebody's blood level and it's deficient and you supplement it, you're actually treating a disease. If you just buy your multivitamins for no reason and take them, right. that's very different. Do I need to be in a clinical population as I age to benefit um, from E and B12? Or is this generally... From D and B12? Sorry, you mentioned... D. D, sorry. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you, you might be at high risk if you're over 70, 75, and if you're... Um, certain, there's certain other risk factors, so um, you can get your level measured, or if you live in a nursing home, you probably should take it no matter what. So, right. yeah. But at a population-level multivitamins, it seems like the there's a, a risk towards... Neutral or harm? Neutral mm. or harm, okay. So, clarification there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I apologise, this question might have been asked already, um, it might be a bit specific, but what is your take on uh, the benefits of being gluten-free, either from lifestyle or because of medical condition, in terms of uh, long-term health benefits? A vitamin D? No, uh, gluten-free. Gluten -free. Oh, gluten-free diet. 
<laughs> Overrated, unnecessary, making a lot of money for the food industry. A few people have this condition, but not yeah. nearly the number of people who call themselves gluten-free. That's a sound bite. Personal Thank opinion. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, question here. We need a mic. Yeah. Um, there's someone with a mic up the back with a question, and then we'll come to you. We'll just have this person, and then I'll come straight to you. Thank you. Hi, um, uh, thank you for taking my question. I just had a, I was wondering about um, the higher incidence of neck and back pain. Probably now is probably going to increase in the future with smartphones and everything. Um, I was wondering what's a good way to counter that and whether, uh, what are your views on chiropractic treatment? Yeah. Head and neck pain is everywhere. Head and neck pain. I think are you are you referring to uh, mobile phone, smartphone related uh, injuries? That's right. That's yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, uh, by uh, I read uh, recently somewhere that um, uh, by uh, by having a tilt of forty five degrees on while uh, holding a smartphone, you put a weight on your um, cervical spine of uh, 25 kilograms, the equivalent of 25 kilograms. Uh, I think what's going to happen in the years to come, especially with the current, the generation who are currently teenagers, by the age of 30, we will experience, we will see a massive epidemic of cervical spine uh, injuries caused by mobile phones. Uh, the, guide, the current guidance about the right way to hold the smartphone is like this. It's a very awkward way <laughs> to hold it. There is a guideline. <laughs> and that, uh, I, had, I have some personal experience, some recent personal experience. I've started doing it because I developed actually some problems a few <laughs> months ago. So I started using it this way. Uh, I've been shouted at a couple of times because people think that I take <laughs> videos of them. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been, I was shouted at in uh, Scotland recently. Uh, so it's something that you, it has to be practiced with care, I guess. Can I just say, uh, the, the other um, main cause of neck and back pain is sitting like this. So you don't really have to be using a phone. You just have to be sitting the way people normally sit. So. The thing that I tell my patients all the time is if instead of sitting like this, all you have to do to not sit like that is tuck your feet up under you. You're automatically, in, you guys can try this right now, perfect position, neck, back, perfect position, helps your stomach muscles as well. Um, I'm actually developing a little pad with some people in the engineering school that will shock you if you put your feet down. Um, but if you sit like this all day long, you actually can't slouch and you can't get neck and back pain. Um, if you try to slouch with your feet up, you'll actually fall into your computer screen. So try that at home. Um, but in fact, it's not only good for your neck and back, it prevents rotator cuff disease, thoracic kyphosis. So it's good for what ails you. So just tuck your feet up and we're done. Good advice. Um, uh, chiropractic. I'm not sure if we want to make a comment about a whole profession no. or otherwise. No. No, no comment. Posture from the ballet class or get good posture from ballet class. Or yoga. Good posture. Uh, question here, yes. Could each of you please provide an example of what you think, should you be able to change it right now, would be the most beneficial policy change um, to improve health in this, the country? And your evidence, like which, you know, where are the studies coming from to support that? Uh, the the six-hour workday. <laughs> <laughs> 
Evi- evidence base for that? No? Uh, it's been, uh, it, it has started being implemented in Sweden. Uh, it's been going back and forth. There is no evidence. There's no evidence. It's an educated opinion. <laughs> I would say it, it's considering exercise as medicine and therefore paying for it in the healthcare system. So Medicare should pay for exercise therapy the exact same way it pays for drugs for, for conditions for which it has been proven to be efficacious, of which there are many. And for me, again, I'm going back to um, prioritize active travel for both pedestrians and cyclists. We've got time for a couple more questions before we wrap up here. We've got a question. Thank you. Hi, good evening. Um, I have a question about, sorry, I'm here. Yes, hello. <laughs> um, artificial intelligence and um, basically getting your take on um, what it would bring to you both as researchers and also your opinion about that maybe magic new health advisor that artificial intelligence can bring to everybody. <laughs> You've stunned me into silence. You caught us out of our depth now. <laughs> Can't uh, come on. Artificial intelligence, in, in terms of research, uh, in our field, uh, opens uh, has already opened. If you are referring to things like machine learning, yeah, it has already opened uh, huge avenues to understanding the physical activity patterns. Uh, so components and characteristics of the physical activity we're doing that we couldn't detect them before, um, and how these characteristics of uh, physical activity are linked to specific health outcomes. It's still in the very early days, but the potential there is huge, is really huge. Literally, we can be wearing a little monitor, a little machine here that can tell us the type, the posture, the intensity, uh, information that it's impossible to gather through questionnaires which most of the evidence is questionnaire-based so far in, physical, in, in active epidemiology, at least, population sciences. Question here. Yeah. I just wanted to go back on what you were saying um, about vitamins, because now I'm massively disturbed. Like, 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 I'm sure everyone here takes a vitamin C or something. I just want to know, like you said, so it either does, you said something, it either does neutral or, or causes harm. Could you please elaborate, because I'm fascinated. Hmm. Yeah, there, there, there was a, I think there was a British... British Medical Journal meta-analysis a few years ago that showed that there was an increase, uh, there was a kind of dose-response increase in all-cause mortality risk with higher uh, m- uh, higher vitamin intake, multivitamin intake. I, c- I cannot remember exactly what was the the exact uh, indicator measurement of uh, vitamins dose, but uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I have seen other other reviews again that showing show no effect. So. There seems to be no benefit, at least with those kind of outcomes that relate to longevity, all-cause mortality. I don't know anything about more specific, narrow outcomes. So you have been officially disturbed by University of Sydney yeah. professor. They've saved you a lot of money. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps, perhaps that will save you some money. Yeah. Just look, look into the li- literature. It's worth looking into the literature. So you heard it here first. Multivitamins are causing uh, very expensive urine and <laughs> uh, causing no health benefit and maybe some harm. Up the back. Okay. Um, so I guess my question is uh, to do with sleep. 
Um, and I hear people say, you know, some people don't need as much sleep, others need more. Um, I wondered if you could comment on, I guess, the role or the, of, or the length or quality of sleep um, on, on health. What, oh, if you want. There are studies showing that there is probably a range of healthful sleep duration that people have, and less than six hours or six, and six to seven hours a night or greater than nine hours a night is actually associated with increased mortality compared to sort of seven to, seven to eight hours a night. Um, the need for sleep decreases a little bit with aging, but some of that is made up by um, napping in other parts of the day. Um, but there certainly is um, there's evidence that disrupted sleep and sleep, sleep um, that is um, out of sync because of, for example, um, shift work um, is um, negative in terms of its health aspects, both in terms of things like insulin resistance and diabetes risk, as well as cognitive impairment, um, as well as depression and stress. Um, and so I think there are a lot of um, health effects um, related to sleep disruption and sleep disturbance. Um, but there is, an, there is a range of normal, which is somewhere between sort of seven to nine hours, um, doesn't have any ill health effects. I'm yeah. just going to add on to that, sorry. Um, sleep has just emerged to be one of the uh, important lifestyle risk factors that we, we kind of just start to realize how important it is, even though it's one third of our time. Um, American Sleep Association has these recommendations of seven to nine hours for the general populations and seven to eight hours for seniors. Um, I'm not going to comment on their specific um, hours. But uh, in general, it's like what Maria says, you know, too little is not good and too much is not good either. And I think the too little, usually in the literature, it's the cutoff point of about six hours. So definitely don't sleep less than six hours. Yeah, I'd like to add uh, on the too much sleep point that both Maria and Melody made. I don't think there is a biological basis for too much sleep to be causing harm. I think that uh, what we see in observational studies that uh, consistently show that uh, over nine hours per day of sleep uh, is associated with increased mortality, cardiovascular mortality risk, is for methodological reasons. There is something, there is under, an under underlying factor there that we don't capture this kind of studies, don't capture properly. Uh, my suspicion, my guess, is that uh, it has to do with mental health, oversleeping, perhaps. There is no, as far as I know, there is no biological mechanism to suggest that too much sleeping can be causing harm to our health. And in any case, in our society, the problem is too little sleep. So I don't think it's worth considering too much sleep as a public health problem. Before we go to our last question, who's getting less than six hours sleep? That many. <laughs> who's getting seven to nine? <laughs> who's getting more than nine? <laughs> <laughs> you have been warned. Okay. <laughs> last question. Thanks. Um, yeah, I was just wondering your thoughts on a vegetarian diet versus one that's meat-based. Um, <laughs> and also because around a year ago or so, you know, I was in the media for a few days. I was quite yeah, prominent that, about the... That was indeed my study. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I think it's actually a good point. Uh, it's a good time to bring up the vegetarian diet um, issue because, again, it's, it's very consistent with the theme tonight, you know. Um, are we talking about one single factor or are we talking about like a whole range of contextual information embedded in that factor? So my study used the 45 and up study, more than 250,000 um, senior, um, middle-aged to older adults in, in New South Wales. And what, what I found was that, um, yes, vegetarians 
are less likely to die during the follow-up period, but vegetarianism doesn't necessarily cause that. So, you know, to kind of unpack that, if we're not adjusting for anything, vegetarians does have a crude death rate that is slightly lower than non-vegetarians. But then we zoom in to look at the vegetarians. They're the one who um, report to have pretty much healthier behavior on every dimension. They smoke less, they drink less, they're more physically active, they report less physical and mental problems. So when you start to account for all that, actually there was no effect at all. So I'm not trying to discourage people from vegetarian diet because um, vegetarian diet has been found to be consistently associated with specific conditions like specific type of cancers, like colorectal cancer, for example. Um, but in terms of all-cause mortality, so far the evidence is very mixed, and we, we just can't say that vegetarians, because of their vegetarian diet, live longer. But you can still be vegetarian for other reasons. But beyond personal health, we should take into account and we should consider the environmental benefits of vegetarianism. Exactly. It's not so about ourselves only, it's about the planet as well. A cow needs a tank of water the size of this room, of this lecture theater, to... Yeah, so it's, it's important to acknowledge that um, everyone, you know, <coughs> vegetarians have different reasons to be vegetarians. All I'm saying is that um, perhaps they don't necessarily live longer or are less likely to die. <laughs> but and there are studies that show, there are lots of studies on vegetarian diets that do show decreased mortality. I mean, it's not just the 45 and up it's study mixed. that's it's looked mixed. at it's it. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, we have to wrap the conversation. Uh, Maria Fiatteroni seeing. Uh, Manos Stamatakis and Melody Devine. If you'd put your hands together for the panel, thank you. <laughs>